Um, Father God, we come before you this morning. Um, we steady our hearts and we hand them over to you. Um, you have ordained this time for um, the glorification of yourself and the edification of your people. And I pray, O oh God, that exactly that would happen, that any distractions, anything, Lord God, that I bring to the table, anything that's in the environment, anything that we left undone at home or anything that we have pending on the job tomorrow, anything that's just kind of looming over our lives, whether it be uh, exciting or, or something that's really uh, defeating our faith right now, regardless of what it is, if there's anything, Lord God, that is competing for the place in our attention and focus that should belong exclusively to you. We pray, oh God, that you would bring it under arrest. We ask also, God, that um, we would lean into today's message and we would hear from you, understanding that if you've carved this time out for us providentially, even if it doesn't apply in this very moment, it will eventually. And so we pray, oh God, that we would depend upon your word like our lives depend on it, because they do. And so we just ask now, God, that you would just show up in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen and amen. So as you know, uh, earlier uh, in the month or just last week, we kicked off this new series called Real Faith. Real Faith. And in uh, Real Faith, we... Um, we adopted last week just kind of the book of James, and we're going to just walk through the book of James verse by verse and really begin to extract some of the great truths there um, that James has for us. Uh, last week you heard when we opened the passage in, there in chapter 1 um, uh, from the theme of counterintuitive because James, through uh, the Holy Spirit, um, well, the Holy Spirit through the pen of James calls us to rejoice when we encounter various challenges, which is quite interesting. It is counterintuitive. And so um, today I want to talk to you a little bit about the reality check. And so uh, just for the purpose of uh, what we're going to be talking about, I, I, I want to look at the three verses that we are going to cover, but I want to look at them in connection to last week as well, because there's some truths that we have to bring forward in order to fully appreciate this. So I'm going to start with uh, James chapter 1, verses verse 2, and kind of get a running start. Uh, as we go down through 11. It says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and the steadfastness of when steadfastness has its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And if, you, if he who lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him, but let him ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that they will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And then the focus text of today, it says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass its flower falls and its beauty perishes so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits this is going to be fun um when I do go to amusement parks, I don't always ride roller coasters, but when I do, I always smile for the camera. You know what I'm talking about, the camera? 
When you ride on a roller coaster, if you go to one that, that one of those venues where they want to take your picture at a certain point, and they don't want to take your picture at the comfortable part of the roller coaster, they want to take your picture on the way down. And when like there's like I don't know like nine G's, that's probably too much. That's kind of what jet fighters experience. So maybe 3.5, three G's on a roller coaster. But nevertheless. Um, on a roller coaster, I don't know how many G's it is, but I know that you being pressed back in the seat and the skin on your face is not obeying. How about that? I don't know the scientific measurement of how much force that is, but I know this, it's rough. But every time I'm on one of those roller coasters, I always smile for the camera. And the reason that I smile for the camera is not because I intend on buying the photos, it's just that when I walk out and I see all of those pictures of all those other people looking crazy, I just want to be that one dude who just looked right at the camera on the way down, hands not up, just like this. Ha! Right? Fully just impervious to the forces of the roller coaster. You don't scare me. Yeah, I'm on my way down and I'm going down hard, but I'm loving it. Look at me. Right? The roller coaster pose. But I'll tell you this, while that's, that's a funny gesture, and I do do that, but while it's funny for us at amusement parks, it's not funny in life. I mean, let's just talk about it for real. Uh, uh, when, we're, when we're on our way up, it's easy to boast. It's easy to grin. It's, it's easy to smile. But today's text tells us that we should also boast in glory when we're on our way down. How is that possible? It seems like the title of the entire series should be counterintuitive, not just last week's message. But there is a little bit of a reality check that I want to talk to you about today. And the reality check is this, is that as the body of Christ, we must learn to grow through trials, not just go through trials. I'll say it again. I will. Yeah. Um, we as the body of Christ must learn to grow through trials, not just go through trials. Now, this ability to grow through trials and not just go through trials is not a work of just human discipline and stick-to-itiveness or smiling on the roller coaster, right? Because that only lasts for a few seconds. But we're talking about how does one truly boast on their way down in life, boast through humiliation? How is it possible that we could possibly obey the Bible and actually grow through trials and take glory in them and to enjoy when something that is really crushing our life is taking place? How do we do it? I believe that the Bible teaches us this in just three short verses, verses 9 through 11. And I want to point out several realities from this passage that will help us do this. Now, let's zero in on verses 9 through 11 one more time. It says, let the lowly brother boast in his humiliation and the rich, excuse me, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Like, how is this possible? First and foremost, I want you to note something that James has been doing since the first message. Back in verse 2 and also now in verse 9, I want you to notice a particular term that James is using when he's talking to this audience who is being invited to this very counterintuitive reality check of how one might boast during one of the, the most bitter phases of life. If you look at verse 2 and you look at verse 9, there's a, a, a deeply theological technical term. It's called brothers. Do you see it? He says, brothers, count it all joy when you meet various trials. And then you, 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 you scoot down to verse 9 and it says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. 
He doesn't distinguish between the, the rich and the poor guy, or the lowly and the high guy are both brothers. Not brothers, they're brothers. They're brothers in the Lord. This book is addressed to believers. So one of the first keys to understand this is that this is addressed to brothers and sisters and not to tourists and visitors. Uh, let me give it to you this way. Imagine, if you will, I begin to read from a document, from a document. Let's just call it uh, the Constitution here on the platform. And I begin to read off a series of promises, a series of privileges, a series of opportunities. And all of us was like, yes, I want that. Awesome. Sign me up. And then at the end of the conversation of reading off the awesome promises and privileges and the unique powers that are given to us by this Constitution, I, at the end I said, oh, that was actually Canada's Constitution. Constitution. Your mouths would drop and you would say, well, wait a minute, where's ours at? Now, let me, let me explain why, why that's important. Even if it's Canada's constitution, the information included is universally true. It just doesn't have any traction for those that aren't their citizens. So let me just say it this way. The principles that we're teaching, and I'm talking to the unbeliever right now, the principles that we're going to talk about, this is not a, a class on self-discipline, on how to grow through trials and how to, you know, how to toughen up and smile on the down phase of a roller coaster. This is a unique enablement given by God to those who fall under his government, not fall, but who faithfully come under his government and allow themselves to be known as brothers and, brothers and sisters and children of the Father. The promises of the Bible are, 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 are universal universally true, but they only have traction in the lives of those who connect themselves to him as their child. And so we're going to talk about a lot today, and I hope every single one of us can fist pump and hurrah and say, yes, I want that active in my life, but at the same time that you want these truths and realities to be active in your life, I hope you also sink deeply in your seat and ask yourself, am I one of his? Because these counterintuitive realities, this ability to, to boast when I'm on my way down, this ability to, 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 to take joy when I'm going through all kinds of trials, this is the unique privilege of those who are referred to as brothers and sisters. I'll say it again. The truth of God is universal, but the traction of those truths is relational. The traction of those truths is relational. May I give you just a brief example? I would like to consider myself a nice and caring, loving provider. And that is universally true. I mean, that's the case. But do you realize that what I lovingly provide has an exclusive dynamic to a certain group of folks that share my last name and live in my house? Now, you might visit me and enjoy some of those privileges as a visitor, but eventually you got to go home. And so, relationship matters when it comes to these realities. Does that make sense? So, if we're going to grow through trials rather than just go through trials, I think there's a, a, a certain thing that we need to, to, to grab hold of. Uh, last week, you heard, and it's applicable this week as well, that the goal of God in testing our faith is to produce, in some of your Bibles it says patience, in some of your Bibles it says steadfastness, but in all of your Bibles, if it's in translated from the Greek, it's the word hupomone, that is to have peace or, or steadfastness under incredibly fierce conditions, okay? So it's the same basic word. But here's the issue, how 
do I gain patience? How do I grow in patience like that? When, not just when I'm at the, the height of my life, but also when I'm ebbing, when I'm, when I'm racing toward a low point. I, I, I love how James has not only given us the theory of that we should glory uh, in, in various or, or take joy in various temptations and trials, but he takes us to an immediate and practical example. How exactly do you grow in this way? How do you grow in trials? How do you grow in steadfastness? Let me offer you this. I think growing through trials rather than going through trials is more like having a baby than it is riding a bus. Let me offer you this. When you are riding a bus and you stand out on a bus stop, you're like this. It's your agenda, it's your time, because you've got people you need to meet and you need to get a certain place. And, and what you do is you stand there and even when you're on time and the bus is not yet late, you're interpreting everything based on the timeliness of its arrival. You're standing there and you're looking and you're waiting. And when the bus driver arrives, guess what? His name, his face, his identity, the bus driver is irrelevant as long as he knows how to drive the bus. Guess what else is irrelevant? The people waiting with you and the people riding with you. Relationship does not matter with them. The only thing that you need from the people that are on that bus is that they scoot over enough for you to get an edge of the seat for, for the next leg of the journey. You don't want a small talk. You don't want to have any conversation. You don't know who they are. You don't know why they're headed, where they're headed. You just want the bus to take you where you're going. Relationships cease to matter because you're just going. And that's the way some of us go through trials. We put our head down. We get stiff-necked. We get ready. And I just want to go from point A to point B. How do I get through this? How do I get over this? But waiting on God is not like waiting on a bus. It's more like waiting on a baby. When you're waiting on a bus, time is not your friend. But when you're waiting on a baby, time is everything. You see, in those first few weeks, I mean, time is crucial to, you know, effective, you know, uh, pregnancy confirmation, gender identification. Uh, uh, the first few weeks is so crucial to all kinds of development. I mean, each stage of the pregnancy is broken out so much so that your appointments even follow that. So much so that, that, that as time advances, the baby is growing in its maturity and also is the mother and the family. Like mom's body is increasing in its capacity to not only carry, but also to, to care for the baby even after it gets here. Dad's heart and mind is racing and running and he might look like he's crazy, but he's prepping and preparing and doing things around the house. So time, when the baby is on the way, is crucial it's not, a, it's not a, anything that puts a crunch on us, depending on how you prepare for kids. However, I think you get it. Time produces maturity when we're talking about having a baby. Time produces pressure when we're talking about riding a bus. What God is inviting us into when we talk about growing through trials rather than going through trials is are we prepared to look at this as an operation of maturity? Follow me very carefully. What's happening in the womb? Maturity is increasing, capacity is increasing, and survivability is increasing. I'm still talking about the baby, and I'm talking about you, right? So, so not only is the baby, it isn't just getting bigger, it isn't just becoming a larger version of a peanut, right? It's actually developing capabilities. It's actually fingers and toes, and its vital organs are starting to develop so that it can reach a place of maximum viability outside of the womb, right? 
So, so time is crucial when it comes to issues of maturity and relationship. Look at this carefully. I think you got them here on the screen. Maturity should produce this. Uh, uh, one, I think you got it right there. Increased maturity, increased capacity, increased survivability. What do they mean? Number one, when it comes to an increase in maturity, I should be increasing in my relationship with God whether I'm going up the roller coaster or whether I'm going down, whether I'm going from, from, from the bottom and going up or whether I'm going from the top to the bottom, I should be increasing in how I understand what the Lord is doing and saying in this season of my life. I should also be increasing in my capacity. How is this experience increasing my ability to serve God and others? I'm increasing in my survivability for future trials and challenges and other chapters that God has for me in my life. And it is, I should be asking the question during times of trial if I really want to just, if I want to grow rather than just go through, I should be asking the question, what is being added to me for now that is crucial to the next chapter of my life? All three of these realities are meant to redefine our faith, not to defeat or depress our faith. Does that make sense? These three things that, is, that are happening in our lives should be a part of our growth. When we find ourselves in critical times of challenge, whether we're going up or down, we should be asking key questions of maturity, capacity, and survivability. Lord, what are you doing and saying in this season of my life? Now, note that the Bible says that both the person going up and down should ask these questions. How is this so? I want to I I clarify something here. Not even clarify, I just want to clearly state. When you look back at kind of our go-through versus grow-through um, analogy, God has no interest in just being the nameless, faceless transporter of us from A to B. But he desires to be the Father and the Savior who leads us from faith to faith. The Bible puts it this way in Romans chapter 1, uh, verse 17. It said, verses 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith, or the just shall live by faith. In everything that we go through, God is constantly growing us from faith to faith. In other words, the same faith that saved you is not the same faith that keeps you. It is the same faith, but it is a more mature kind of faith. Does that make sense? God is constantly adding into us, adding to us from faith to faith. God is constantly showing us something about, our, about ourselves and himself that matures us from faith to faith. Because each time God clearly reveals himself, it allows us to hang on to him in a more hearty and robust way. Do you remember the times in the Old Testament when people would encounter God in these very fresh ways and they would immediately drop to their knees, build an altar and say, he is the God who provides. He is my shield and my reward. They don't have to go backwards on that. They know from that point forward that he is their shield and their reward. Well, that isn't just the Old Testament curriculum. God is still developing his people from faith to faith, from challenge to challenge, from trust to trust, from opportunity to opportunity, from roller coaster to roller coaster. God wants to be seen in very specific ways. I want to revisit real quick our bus analogy. Because I believe that for some of us, if you want to know if you're just going through trials rather than growing through trials... Here's what you can ask. Here's what you can ask. Does anybody else know what I'm going through? Or are we just sharing the same seat on the vehicle? Do, do, am, I, am I paying particular attention to the face of the person that's taking me there and leading and guiding me? Am I pressing into God to know some detail about him today that I didn't know yesterday? Or am I just hoping that God or anybody else who can provide relief will just kick in at any moment now? 
You see, when your heart is just eager for relief and not for a relationship, you will take relief from anybody who will bring it, any measure who will bring it, any God who will bring it. But when we lean in and say, Lord, how do you want to be known? What are you saying? What are you doing? How is this increasing my capacity to serve others? When we begin to ask these questions, we are now positioning ourselves to actually rejoice. So, so, so my challenge would be, the next time you go through a trial, get your notebook out. Create three columns. Put one down called maturity, another called capacity, another called survivability. And just throughout the trial, whether it lasts two months or whether it lasts 10 years, just keep a journal. Hmm, I matured this way today. I saw God this way. I heard God this way. My capacity to serve others just increased this way. Don't waste your trials. Because when you waste your trials, you're just going through. You're not growing through. And here's the problem. If God is committed to showing you himself in a certain way and all you do is go through, you might need to prepare for another lap around the track. I mean, Israel did. They did 40 laps around the track. And so... God doesn't have an interest in being the nameless, faceless transporter, but he wants to be known clearly as a father and savior who leads us from faith to faith. Let's look very squarely at verses 9 and 10 again. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Now, I can understand how the brother that's on his way up might boast, but help me understand how both of them should have the same boast, but in different circumstances. How is that possible, right? Unless the object of the boast isn't what we think it is. You see, if we think that the object of the boast is, is the brother who's a lowly brother who's about to be on top, if we think that the object of his boasting is in what he got there, this is what we're missing it. Because I'm going to tell you something. The, the, the same trust in God to successfully go up, it also takes that same trust to go down. Let's revisit the roller coaster analogy. Do you understand that roller coaster cars don't have engines? You're just sitting there. It's something else that's pulling them up. And you and I trust that cable to pull us. Well, it's the same cable that pulls us, the same mechanics that pulls us, it's the same set of mechanics that help us to break to make sure that we don't break our necks on the way down. You understand that, 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 that the same faith that it takes to go up the ladder, socioeconomically, politically, personally, relationally, the same faith that it takes to go up in a way that pleases God, it also takes that same faith to take us down. The, 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 to do it in a way that pleases God, that pleases God. Let me explain. Uh, Job chapter 1, verse 20. If you've never read Job's story, you need to do this. At the opening of the book of Job, most of us are familiar with the story between God and the, uh, the sons of God and Satan that presented themselves. But the, the preamble to the book is telling you how rich Job was. Job was killing it. Job, was, Job had bank. And guess what? The Bible wanted us to know that as a first order of business, and it wanted us to know it numerically. If you read the, if you read the opening statement, if you read the top of Job's resume or the back of his business card, it, it, it gives us his literal bank statement. It shows us how many hundreds of animals of each type he owned. 
And that was, the, that was the wallet, that was the bank statement of the ancient Near East. The Bible wanted us to know that just before we get into this conversation of him, about, of him being tempted or challenged. And so then Job gets the news that his cattle are dead and then his family is dead, except for his wife. And guess what? It says here in, in verses 20 and 21, in verses 20 through 22, it says, Then Job arose, he tore his robe, he shaved his head, he fell on the ground, and he worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, the Lord took me up to the top, and it is the Lord who taketh away. Guess what he say? Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then the Bible says of him, God says of him, In all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. There are two personalities in the Bible who simultaneously in their lives, they know what it means to go up and to come down and to do so in a way that produces profound maturity. One is Job and the other one is Solomon. And so here's what I want you to understand. How can Job worship after being brought so low? How can Job worship after being brought so low? I'll tell you how. When my faith is interpreting trials, this is what I say. Huh, wow, I wonder what is he going to do? But when my flesh is interpreting trials, I go, man, what is we going to do? You understand? So, 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 so think about that. The next time you're, feature, you're, you're faced with a trial, are you asking the question like, what are you going to do? Or are you sitting back with your metaphorical box of popcorn like, oh God, this is going to be good. Because I know you're a redeemer. I know you're your Lord of heaven and earth. I know because you're Lord of heaven and earth and you own all things that are in, that this is the theater of your glory. I'm about to watch you show out. How are you going to fix this? Oh, I got to put the popcorn down and play a role too? Okay, I'm in your play. What role do you want me to play? Oh, I don't get to be the superstar this time? I get to be the village idiot? Okay, long as I'm in your production, God. But, but here's the deal. It, it, it is, if I really believe, if my faith is interpreting the trials, I fall on my knees and I move to a place of devotion. If my flesh is interpreting the trial, I move to a place of depression. Because my five senses are telling me that there is no hope and that my wallet is dry and that my resources are spent and that there's nothing that I can do. And God might be saying, that's absolutely true, but that's not what I'm trying to show you. I'm trying to show you me. I, I, I love this. I love this. Again, this is why the promises of the Bible and the beauty of being able to rejoice in God no matter what he does, whether we're going up or down, becomes the unique enterprise of those who come under the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. How many people, uh, uh, there you are, Chipper. How many people have uh, last couple of Sundays seen Chipper uh, uh, running in out of, the, out of the lobby with a naked baby? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or you encountered him in the bathroom, right? So do you know the backstory? Let me just kind of exegete this for you. So, so obviously, the baby makes a mess, right? Somewhere in the vehicle or whatever. And guess what? It's Chipper's baby. It's Chipper's vehicle. So guess what? It's Chipper's mess. And so what I'm saying to you is that if you really do belong to the Father, if you really do press into him by faith, if you really are devoted to him, your mess is his mess. And I hope he doesn't run you through the lobby naked to clean you up. However, you need to know that God's got you. And that if it's affecting you, it's affecting him because you are his. Amen. 
Thank you for that, Chipper. <laughs> Consider this in Job chapter 1, verse 8. I love this. How can I boast on my way up and on my way down? How can I boast in both my exaltation and my humiliation? Look back at Job's life in Job chapter 1, verse 8. This is what the Lord said. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him in all the earth and blameless and an upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. If I'm God's, God ain't going to bet against me because I'm his. It has nothing to do about me. It's God betting on himself. It's God betting on me. Hear me very carefully. If God had confidence that Job could successfully endure, that's all he need. In other words, if God be for me, who can be against me? So the Bible says it also in the New Testament. It says, listen, that the Lord has not only placed levers and, 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 and escapes on our temptation, but he's also placed limits on how much. And so, so, so the reason that I can boast in my humiliation just as I can boast in my exaltation is because it means that God has stood in heaven and said that under his covering, I'm qualified to go through this and showcase something of his glory when I get done. It's a privilege. It's hard to clap to, isn't it? But here's the deal, though. I think we've already covered that some level of, of, of trial is just a customary part of this life, right? Consider this for a moment. You are either, you and I are going to experience trials. It is, it is a non-negotiable. Here's why. Either we're going to obey God and offend the world, and there's going to be friction, or we're going to obey the world and offend God. There's going to be friction. Pick your friction. Pick your friction and devote yourself to God so that as there is friction, you can go through it faithfully with him. So, simply put, the Lord has engineered life with constant indicators of our need for him and our need for him as a father. Look back for a moment at Job chapter 1, verse 20. Look back for a moment. Because this isn't just a work of Job's endurance. It says, then Job arose, he tore his robe. So he ain't smiling on the road coaster, right? He's not faking the fact that he's in discomfort. It says, then Job arose, he tore his robe, he shaved his head, he fell on the ground, and he lamented, he cried, he boo-hooed, he licked his wounds. No, he worshiped. He recognized God for who he was. He matured. His view of who God was expanded. And it wasn't like he was going from a place of total ignorance to like some brand new knowledge. It was just he, his view of God was expanding. The Bible already said the man was blameless. So I want you to hear me loud and clear for those of you that have been serving God faithfully from your childhood up and you believe that you put in enough deposits that you shouldn't have to have a lot of suffering. Job did too. And God wanted to expand his view of who he was. He wanted, God wanted to be larger in Job's eyes, a larger reality of who God is. And he wants that for us as well. Here's what I want us to understand. When we look at Job hit his knees, this isn't just kind of a, a depiction of what he did, but I think it's also a pattern of what we should do. The ride, this roller coaster ride in life, be it up or down, it is not over until my need for God produces new knowledge of God, which produces kneeling to God. I want you to hear me. 
This ride, your ride, whatever you're currently going through, you could be having the most high time of your entire life. Trust me, it's not over. And I'm not saying it's going to come to some kind of tragic implosion. That's not, I'm not wishing that on you. That's not, I'm not some kind of doomsday uh, type of person. But what I am saying is that whatever you're doing, whether, but you should be trusting and boasting in God on your way up and on your way down. Why? Because the ride is not over until my need for God produces not just a generic acknowledgement, but it produces a new knowledge of how he uniquely provides in that way. So here comes that variety, right? We've all heard of God as a provider, but has anybody ever um, found themselves walking in the middle of the night and you knew that in general there were certain groceries and supplies at a given store, right? But you were like, oh, it's like 12, 15 a.m. and I need this now. And you get out the car, slippers, pajamas, bonnets, you know, whatever you do, and you're racing down the road and you pull in the parking lot and you bust in there and you're going down the aisles and you're looking for your one thing and you notice all these other things that they got at CVS and you're like, what? I didn't know they had this in here. And what I'm saying is there is nothing like trial that gives greater definition to our understanding of what there is that, there, that is in God for us. There's nothing like trial that, that, that more refines our faith to realize how specific and detailed and comprehensive of a provider that he is. It's not enough to just generically know him, like, again, like the Walmart of heaven. But the Lord wants us to explore the aisles and know specifically how and what he provides. As, as one author would put it, that it is in him that we live and move and have our being. He's always inviting us into this deeper and greater exploration of his person. But let's get to verses 10 and 11, shall we? This is interesting. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because, why? Why can both of them boast? There are three fundamental truths. Why can both of them boast? It says, like the flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises and the scorching heat and it withers the grass. The flower falls and the beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. I want you to note that while it sounds like the conversation is aimed exclusively at the rich guy, both are called to boast on the basis of the same truth. In this particular passage, in these two verses, there are three common denominators that we all share, regardless of what our last statement from Wachovia, or oh, they don't even have it anymore, Wells Fargo looks like. Hey, man, showing that age, huh? Um, first union. Your turn. Nope. <laughs> oh, okay. sorry. All right. Um, there are three basic truths in this passage that represent what I just would call a, a, a common denominator of truth. Let, let me ask you this. If a person makes, um, oh, $6 an hour or $3 million a year, you know what? They have a common denominator. You know what that common denominator is? Three. <laughs> Three. Look in this passage. Look at this passage. I don't care where you are or who you are. I need to recognize and realize these three common denominators. When James talks about this flower and its relationship with the sun, here's what he shows us quite clearly. Man, I need a, like a, one of those uh, Charles Barkley or um, Worley. Who is that? <laughs> James Worthy. Um, headbands. But 
There's three things here, and I want you to note them with me. They are clearly expressed as the finality, the frailty, and the futility of human life. Do you see that? In verse 11, it says, like the, verse 10, like the flower of the grass, he will pass away. We are acquainted with the brevity and the finality of human life. Then it also shows us that when the sun is raised, that it will wither. This is the frailty of human life. And then, of course, it says that, 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 that we also will hit a point where we experience, it, once it perishes, its beauty is gone, and so will the rich man in his, uh, he will fade away in his pursuits. So every human being should be deeply acquainted, not through, not through tragedy, but we should be deeply acquainted with our finality, our frailty, and our futility. These are the three common denominators of all human life, whether you live in Hamtramck, Michigan, or whether you live in Hollywood. I don't care where you're from, or what you do, or how much you got in the bank, or how much of your life is, I don't care what you do. You could be the smartest person in the room. We all have three common denominators. We are frail, we are brief, and our efforts are futile. And it was Solomon who began to paint this picture for us, who happened to be the richest man, the wisest man in the world, according to the Bible. So the man who is simultaneously the richest and the wisest says all this stuff is futility. It's all vanity and it's all frailty. But he does not say that to an end that we would be depressed and defeated. When we talk about our finality, what exactly is God trying to show me when it comes to my finality? It raises my awareness of his eternality. Do we know what that is? The little theology proper for those that are on their way um, to our essentials course? The eternality of God means that he lives outside of time. Let me give you a very practical exercise on how the eternality of God uh, uh, through the lens of your finality will help you. If you're a, a young single person or you're becoming a middle-aged single person and you're out here praying and pushing and fretting and asking God to show you who your mate's going to be and you're trusting God to provide a mate and you're calling on God as the great matchmaker. That's the identity you want him to hold. And God is saying, I'm cool with being the great matchmaker, but I want you to understand my eternality, that I'm not on your clock. And the fact that you feel like you're getting older every day somehow challenges your marriage ability, that don't matter to me. If I got somebody for you, I got somebody for you. I'm eternal. I'm outside the clock. I'm outside your calendar. I'm outside your agenda. I'm outside your schedule. I'm outside the stuff that you're trying to get accomplished before you hit a certain milestone. And so God calls us to appreciate, to enjoy, and to worship his eternality. The fact that he sits outside of our schedule and he is, no way, he is no way captive to it. And it is nothing like our finality, the fact that we wake up and realize that we have either aged, if that bothers you. It is nothing like being acquainted with our finality and our brevity that brings us to our knees to worship God in his eternality. So God isn't trying to defeat you or depress you by prolonging whatever thing it is you're praying about. He's just inviting you to enjoy his eternality. Will you trust me as the God? I'm not just running around your house updating your clocks by five minutes and trying to trick you. I really do live outside of time, he says. Will we worship him as that? Now you might be saying, well, Pastor Rod, that's so deep. Well, God, he, he, he is eternal and he wants you to know him that way. And how does he take time-bound creatures and make them know his eternality? By putting us in a situation where our brevity, we have to hold over to him and say, God, you got to fix this because I'm either out of time or I don't know what to do with the time that I have. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Our experienced saints are acquainted with brevity. <laughs> Amen. But the Lord also wants those of us who are the spring chickens 
of the world to be acquainted with our brevity so that we might be further acquainted with his eternality. You understand that when we don't understand God's eternality, I want you to, I want you to think about both the guy going up and the person coming down the socioeconomic roller coaster in verses 10 and 11. The person who's going up who forgets about their brevity makes a whole lot of dumb decisions. They make decisions in a way as if they're, as, as if, you know, you know, tomorrow doesn't matter. Life is always going to be like this. The person that's, that's going up demands the same amount of faith as the one going down. We, we have to realize that, Lord, it is you that is ascending me, so what are you bringing me to this place for? Give me wisdom so that I can live life properly in this unique season. God, I desperately need you because I don't want the dollar to rule me. And so we need him in the high times just as much as we need him in the low times because we are equally frail on both sides of the, of the roller coaster. So our finality is there. Our frailty is there. Our frailty should raise our awareness of not only our own frailty, because we'll get acquainted with that through trial, but, but we should also get acquainted and deeply and prepare, be prepared to worship God for his everlasting strength. That is, we are frail. That is, our strength gives out. And God says, now that you've officially reached the end of yourself and realize that your strength is not capable, here comes mine. And I'm not just coming like the bus driver to help you. I want to grow you. I want you to know me as your father. I want you to experience my everlasting strength in such a way that you would worship me through it. Not just as a great mechanic who came in and fixed your issue. Worship me as your father who has everlasting strength, who has unfailing strength who is capable of keeping you no matter what when you have no strength. I'm not, just a, I'm not your supplement. I'm not just something that you'll take alongside what you're already capable of doing. One of the greatest lies ever told, unofficial theology, God helps those who... We are helpless. We just aren't acquainted with that helplessness yet. So there's finality, there's frailty, and there's also futility. Futility raises my awareness of this, quite simply, God's evaluation, his true evaluation of life and what he actually treasures. Solomon put it this way, he says, for all the days of, uh, all for all his days, that is in Ecclesiastes 2.23, for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is of vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest, this also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw from the hand of the Lord. Apart from him, who can eat or drink or have enjoyment? So the Lord recognizes that, that, that even when we're enjoying ourselves, that came from the Lord. That's one of the first functions of our faith that it should grab hold of. But Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14 say this. Solomon gives us even greater wisdom at the end of his great work. He says, this is the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandment. This is the whole duty of man. Forget, for God will bring every deed into judgment and every secret thing, whether good or evil. Jesus put it this way. Don't lay up treasure for yourselves on, on earth where thieves can steal and, and rust can rot and moss can chew it up. Lay up treasure for yourselves in heaven. Make God and his righteousness and his kingdom and serving him your first priority. And guess what? God will add to you all those things that you need. And so the Lord is always about, in, in, in this acquaintance with our finality, frailty, and futility, making sure that there is nothing other than him that really is our Lord. Here it is. I want you to walk away with this. You can have it all and it mean nothing unless 
you have the Lord as your all in all. You can have it all and it mean nothing at all unless you have the Lord as your all in all. It is the Lord that must give context to both our prosperity and even our peril. So, here's the ultimate reality check. We close. I can't run from my finality, my frailty, or my futility, but I can rest in his eternality. When we talk about resting in the eternality of God, I'm not just talking about sitting here on pews praying for the sweet by and by. I know that the word eternality sounds very ethereal. It sounds like clouds. It sounds like sunsets. It sounds like drifting. It sounds like getting lighting your feet and floating off. No, the eternality of God is applicable right now. You see, the gospel not only provides hope for the future, but it also provides power for now, and it calls us to practice certain principles now. And so the Lord uh, isn't interested in us just showing up in heaven and going, oh, 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 I just figured that out. He wants to use us in that way now because here, think about what the Bible says in the way Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Thy kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The Lord wants those of us who are here to live lives that are so reflective of the agenda of heaven that others are attracted to it and say, how do I get in? How do I get on board? And so what the gospel does is it comes into our life and first, yes, Acquaints us with the bad news. You are frail. You are brief. You are, you are finite. You can't do it alone. But the Lord doesn't stop the conversation there. The whole reason that the Lord acquaints us with our finality and with our frailty and with the futility of the works of our hands is so that we might turn to him and worship. Our ability to please God through good works, if you're here today and you do not have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ because you feel like you're going to get in on some other type of advanced placement plan, like you are going to just do a lot of good work minus the relationship and hand that in at the final exam, you are crazy. This is all an enterprise and an exercise of relationship. The Lord isn't running some kind of bank or some kind of trading firm in heaven to see who can bring in the most chips. He is a God and he is a father and he is looking for children, not traders, who want to come in and say, here's my morality, can I get in with this? Therefore, if we want to be where God is, if we want this kind of power, the ability to boast on our way up or the ability to boast on our way down, we have to plug into the Lord Jesus Christ. And to plug into the Lord Jesus Christ means to place my full weight on the truth of the gospel, that he died for my sin in my place because it should have been me, was raised so that I would not just have peace and harmony, but so that we would have power over sin, death, and the devil. But I have to come to a recognition that I am frail, that I am finite, and that I am fallen, and that I need that kind of Savior. And I need all of him, not just some of him in the one or two areas where I'm disgusted with my behavior or feel like I can't pull myself up by my own bootstraps. We need Jesus. We need him desperately. And for those of you that already know him, we need to further trust, continue to trust in that same gospel to give us the ability to triumph through trials, not faking the smile on the roller coaster, but truly being filled with joy because though you know that the Lord is with you and that he is working on you and he is working through you and he is increasing your maturity in him and your capacity to serve him and your survivability for whatever the next chapter you have in him. That's why we should rejoice in our trials. That's why we can boast on our way up and boast on our way down because God is with us, not because I can pull myself through. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you this morning. We're thankful to you for 
your, for your very vivid and great truth. And we pray, oh God, that for any issue that is currently at work within our lives, that we would yield to your eternality, that we would hand it over, that we would quickly find, not in a fake way, but we would quickly find our frailty, our brevity, our finality, our fallenness. We take full ownership for it, and then, Lord God, we'd hand it off to you. We need you, Lord. We need you on both ends of the roller coaster. On our way up, give us clarity of thought, humbleness of heart, even as we celebrate what you're doing in our life. But Lord God, if we're right now, if we're on our way down, help our hearts to boast in you. Give us a greater glimpse of yourself, oh God. Please mature us. Please help us. Help us to see you the way you want to be seen. Give us that great reality check that only you can give. Lord God, put our lives on a stage, under a spotlight, so that as we're working through our various trials, that others who see us would ask, what in the world gives you your hope? And we can tell them about Christ. Lord God, we beg this in Jesus' name. Amen.